Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 21 of Roll for Enterprise. You can find us on the web at rollforenterprise.com. You can find us on Twitter at Roll4Enterprise with the number four. And there's a LinkedIn page as well, which is unsurprisingly Roll for Enterprise. As ever, Zach, Mike, and I are here to talk about the latest news in enterprise IT. And this week, we wanted to start at a fairly high level talking about DevOps and NoOps and GitOps and all of these new variants on what used to be called just plain IT ops. Uh, so, Zach, you were the one who brought up the topic of GitOps. Do you want to share with the audience and with us, to be honest, what your definition of GitOps is? And then we can go from there. Yeah, thanks, Dominic. Yeah, GitOps is really focused around, you know, Kubernetes, you know, cluster management. Um, it's yet another paradigm in, in the, you know, XOps, you know, DevOps, GitOps, uh, NetOps, SecOps. But uh, so, yeah, so it's really focused, again, around that. And um, it's just a different way of the continuous delivery model um, uh, in that world. It isn't, I mean, everything needs operations. I mean, it's just operations, isn't it? Yeah. Or it's just focused operations. It's just, I mean, exactly, exactly. It's it's focused operations. Yes, it's uh, again focused around, you know, like Kubernetes. Um, you know, operational model around Kubernetes and, and cluster management. Um, so yes, and, and not to confuse things, but now you have you know. <laughs> Other variations, right? So, you know, uh, how does it differ from infrastructure as code? I mean, there there is some gray area. And I think there's gray area across all these different ops that we were just talking about. GitOps, how does that fit in with, um, you know, some of the other the other operational models? As you look at, as you look at, you know, whether you call it operations, you know, DevOps, GitOps, no matter what, I mean, you always need operations, right? And I I, I, I get the feeling some of the the names that we we append to operations is really because of that that changing skill set that people need because of of how technology is is continuously evolving, right? Um, so I think that's what they're ultimately getting at. I, I don't know what you're thinking, Dominic, is is around this here. Yeah, I mean, I have form here. I'll link it in the show notes. I wrote a piece way back in 2014 when people first started talking about no ops. And I'm an old sysadmin guy at heart. Uh, I had an allergic reaction at first to the idea of no ops. And then I started thinking about it a little bit more. And actually, that takes on from something that we always said, even back in the old days, that if you do something more than a couple of times, you should probably automate it, you should probably script it, uh, figure out a way that you don't have to be touching the keyboard for routine issues. And so in that sense, uh, all of these things make make a lot more sense. Uh, so no ops, as in you shouldn't be doing ops by hand, uh, except in emergencies, out of the ordinary situations, uh, is a part of that. GitOps is kind of an extra layer of maturity on that because you start to say, okay, all of these scripts and automations that you've built, they need to be maintained, they need to be versioned, they need to be backed up uh, so that's they need to be documented so that if someone joins the organization, they can figure out how to drive uh, all of that ops without needing to to get involved. So treating the infrastructure as code, treating that code with the same level of respect as we do the application codes that is running the business logic uh, and having the same mature approaches to that makes a lot of sense to me. 
And it's all on a continuum. And Zach, you mentioned a few other variants. SecOps is another one I have history with. Trying to blend security, in this case, with ops, with operations, with uh, maintaining things. So it's not enough to say, I'm going to set this thing up as secure. You have to make sure that it remains secure over time. And what is that if not ops? Yeah, and just just to be clear, you're right. So GitOps is bringing in that, uh, you know, people will probably leverage GitHub for a lot of different, you know, types of development. So it's bringing in, you know, the whole Git environment into this whole DevOps mechanism, much to your point that you just said. So when I was talking Kubernetes a little while ago, you know, that's just the first thing that came to my mind. But essentially, that's what we're doing. We're bringing this in and because this is leveraged. I mean, this is leveraged uh, in a lot of environments. Um, so, you know, how do we put wrap operations around this whole Git model? And I think that's, uh, you know, that is, uh, you know, the, at the core of this, uh, which is interesting because, again, it's yet another operational model. And so, you know, I think there are some questions. I, I like that you brought up, Dominic, the the no ops. Um, in the past, I've, I've been hesitant to to jump on board and uh, the industry floated away from no ops. But it makes me wonder as we talk more and more about this citizen developer community and no code and low code, is it time to bring no ops back? Uh, Mike, Dominic? Yeah, I, you know, obviously the value of ops as you add more and more abstraction tends to deteriorate or yeah, evolve to it's different. It's not the same as it used to be, I would say. Um, but certainly you need it. But I, I, I can see it eroding away as it as it goes, just because of all those abstraction layers, uh, things just work. And it's, it's really being handled at a, you know, as you move to cloud, it's being handled at a different layer, if you ask me where, yeah, potentially, I might need, not need those people uh, long term. Um, but that's why I think, you know, we start to look at like DevOps, GitOps, whatever you want to call it, because there is a level of specialization that comes into um, some of these roles. And I don't know if it's other people taking on operational roles, because I think that that's starting to make much more sense to me where a developer takes on somewhat of an operational role, whereas we always, or at least maybe I tend to look at it as operations taking on um, uh, some more develop development roles, but I think it's it's starting to, to turn around where operations is part of everybody's role. Yeah, that's it. And, and that's the ultimate extension of DevOps. So DevOps started to be letting developers gain more access to, to operations so that this hands-on keyboards type of ops isn't a bottleneck to rolling things out so that the business needs that the developers have built. But vice versa, also giving ops more uh, giving dev pardon more ops responsibility so carrying the pager uh, metaphorically not that anyone carries actual pages anymore but being woken up in the middle of the night if your code breaks gives you a on the one hand more responsibility more ownership more buy-in you want to avoid being woken up in the middle of the night uh, because something broke and so you make sure that things are maintainable but also on the other hand it gives to you as a developer a better understanding of how the code breaks when it breaks, what what happens? What are the fragilities? And so you can build more robust code. So the next step, the next extension of that is when you start having all of these low-code and no-code uh, platforms being used to build business logic, how do we build the same level of ownership into those uh, when those people may not really understand what goes on in that huge tottering pile of abstractions that they use? They only look at the, the very top layer of that 
they don't necessarily have a good model of what's going on underneath in the way that either a developer or a traditional operations person would have. The the worry for organizations is really kind of the, the processes around that. Uh, and, and the reason I say that is, as you begin to hand over control to someone else, right? If you take a look at like your your base ITSM processes, those are those people kind of taken over don't have that same uh, how do I say, but that that same rigor that that the ops folks have, and that's always been the worry. You were going to say something, uh, Zach? Yeah, no, uh, good point. I was going to bring up this no code, low code, and how ops fits in, and my thinking is. This is all around APIs. This is all API first. So this is going to be essential to connecting all of this. So do we have another ops movement or, you know, uh, do we think, <laughs> or are we, is API ops next, right? I, I don't know, but uh, I think it's an interesting discussion because in this no code, especially world and, and even the low code world, it's all APIs. So, you know, we talk about GitOps, for example. I'm glad we brought that up. That, that That's a lot of code based. If you look at, you know, Git and what's in that whole community, so how is that impacted? I, I, I think that's the, the crux of what I'm curious about and um, wondering what you guys think about that. Of course, your low-code, no-code people will not realize that they're using APIs. They're just um, kind of connecting something, whether it's visual or not. So I don't know that they even realize that uh, they're in an API world. Dominic? Yeah, exactly. That, that's the question. How do we expose uh enough information that's useful without overwhelming these people and turning them off again, because uh, that's how we end up rebuilding the silos that the whole idea of DevOps was about tearing down. And uh, there's a wonderful presentation from back in 2016 by Casey West, who's, uh, I believe he's at Google these days. At the time, he was at Pivotal. And it's uh, said no CEO ever, things that don't matter in the cloud. And it's all stuff like, good job choosing a Linux distro, said no CEO ever. This is the sort of infrastructure work that's very important, but it's not relevant to the business. It's uh, stuff that we need to get on with as IT infrastructure people, uh, but it, it doesn't need to be visible outside. It just needs to work. And so it's a different set uh, of parameters compared to things that people actually do want to know about and be aware of and see what's going on. We just expect it. And I think that's exactly the way it should run. Exactly. And so that's why, to me, the Snowflake IPO is so interesting. And people were talking about, oh, isn't it crazy? They've got a 75x multiple. They'll never be able to, to live up to that, to grow to that. And that may still turn out to be the case. Um, I don't know enough about the internals of their business to to be able to to make that call but i think they where they have a very good potential very good growth story is precisely in what we can see negatively as shadow it the snowflake acquisition model is data analysts bypassing it infrastructure instead of having to stand up a whole data center with massive servers massive amounts of disk uh the networking to feed all of it and uh, getting data scientists who are able to program in arcane languages, you get this thing that runs in the cloud. It's uh, it speaks SQL. It's uh, it's easy to work with for for the business analysts, and it can be done. It can be accessed without having to go through uh, all of that old school IT uh, procurement process. And so people see it as you know 
you can describe it negatively as shadow IT or more positively as business empowerment through no ops. There's there's no ops involved in Snowflake. Or rather, Snowflake does the ops. You don't have to care about it. It's just a service that you benefit from as a user. And and I would hope, to be honest, that the IT departments are setting up the, the let's say, Snowflake environment or, or, or whatever the the, the data accesses for these uh, developers or people want to access it and then that's where you know it kind of regains control because they know what's out there what's what's not that, that's the way i, I would hope it, it's uh, it's used but really we're just talking about the democratization of of data right make it available to everybody inside an org and, and here it is and look look how easy it is to use pull it into wherever you want and and here we go. I mean, that's the real power, isn't it? Exactly. That's the role of ops to say, look, don't just stick everything in an S3 bucket and leave it open to the world because that's the easiest way of doing it. Uh, There's some real dangers in doing that. We'll get in trouble. We'll wind up in the news and not in a good way. Let me help you set up your snowflake thing that you want to use in a way that's safe and secure and has access to all the data that it needs to have access to, but doesn't get us in trouble uh, in some other way. That's the role of ops. Provisioning a Linux box, that's table stakes. You should be able to do that in your sleep without anyone having to waste brain cycles on it. And this was the old division that we had in IT, that we had admins and we had operators. Admins were the expert people, the ones who did the thinking, uh, stereotypically the beards and sandals people. Uh, <laughs> the operators were the juniors, the gophers, the ones who changed the the tapes in the backup machine. Uh, and so no ops to me is getting rid of that, uh, letting robots take care of that sort of work uh, because they're cheaper and more reliable, but keeping the expert people around so that they can advise and uh, help the other departments get what they need. I haven't heard anybody uh, refer to them as uh, beard and sandal people uh, in, a, in a while. So so thanks for that, uh, that imagery there. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um... So automating workflows, though, I mean, this is what we're talking about. So by doing that, I guess I go back to uh, that article was written by Forrester years ago. Are we going back to a no ops world if we're automating a lot of these workflows? I mean, what how does operations fit in here? This is my sincere question that I don't even have the answer for. But I I do know that, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of automation going on here and we definitely still need operations. But in in what respect? And we. you know, how do we go forward? And, and we have to provide them that uh, that visibility. But how does it change? That is the big question. I, I haven't seen a good answer. It's uh, I think it's the big unanswered question about all of this stuff. And it's kind of a function of adoption as well. It's a problem that will become obvious once enough people are using the tools in anger. And once probably someone gets burnt, either internally within the company and then the company wakes up and pays attention or enough companies hit the news through losing some important chunk of stuff uh, that was often a no-ops platform and uh, nobody in formal IT I was aware of or was responsible for, for keeping up and running, that a market gets created. I mean, I thought this might happen during the, the last financial crash, uh, supposedly during the unwinding of Lehman Brothers, Um, I believe it was Barclays. I'll have to look up the exact reference and we'll put the the correct reference in the show notes. Uh, But there was an error in a spreadsheet calculation uh, that uh, led to 
a significant difference in the valuation of assets that we're talking in the multi-millions and they just had to eat it because you know the the spreadsheets error had a real world consequence that uh, there was no way to get out of to restore to backups and uh, and not not have to pay out that money i i you know you you bring up a, a good term dominic because i think what we're going to see is a proliferation of applications a proliferation of applications without the same um rigor life cycle that you would see from a standard IT group kind of put out. And if you have a lot of these applications and you start to become reliant on them or one group or a subset and, and, and you start to see it kind of fall off or not, um, not you know, get updated or, or you know, proper maintenance, you know, there, there could be some, some substantial underlying problems um, you know, two, three, four years from now, the companies that are, are going to really be thinking ahead on this are the companies that will use it as, let's say, you know, a, a, a rad environment and, and then and then start to put some fences around it and, and start to take it in and, and, and harden some of these applications. That, that, that's the way I, I would hope most companies are playing it, but it doesn't feel that way now. Right now, it's like let's get the products out there. Let's you know, let, let's just get everybody kind of using what they need to do, and, and let's and let's figure it out as as we go. Which um, is probably so correct. So let me bounce something off you, Mike, as uh, someone on the other side of the table. Uh, so back in the day, and the Statute of Limitations has probably run out because everyone has been acquired. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is not going in a good way, but let's go. <laughs> no, so I was uh, pitching a tool, uh, and there was a competitive tool and addressing the same market, but from a different perspective. So our tool was great. I was recognized to be an extremely powerful tool that you could get a lot of stuff done with. It was just a little bit unfriendly. It was hard to get started with because you had to do a lot of stuff in XSLT. And that's not the friendliest language to work with. So it took probably a good week to get up and running with this thing. But once you did, you could do anything. And there was another tool, which was the mirror opposite. It was very easy to get something that looks really cool done in half an hour to an hour. Once you've been using it for a little bit longer, you start to run into the limitations. But by that point, you, you'd already committed. You'd already done a bunch of stuff. Um, and in fact, they ended up getting bought by Microsoft, uh, whereas ours was more the, the Unix approach. <laughs> Not exactly user-unfriendly, just picky about who its friends are. Uh, and so that's the kind of situation that I worry we might run, uh, run into now, that people pitching... To, to you or more probably to your colleagues, the, the actual end users of this stuff will focus on day one, how quickly can you get something up and running, get it out there and not think so much about the questions that you might ask as an IT person about day two and day three, day N, how am I going to keep this thing running? How are we going to be able to, to maintain it uh, over time? Does that sound like a familiar scenario? Or is this too much vendor inside baseball? No, I, I think you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And and to be honest, the, the hard part sitting out on the IT side is you can't overreact, right? It, it's not like this organization that's gonna gonna test this tool um, is doing anything wrong, right? That, but because I think sometimes you know IT wants to come in and be really uh, overzealous and say, oh, you can't do this. You need to come through us. That 
that, that doesn't work anymore. I mean, let's face it, that that just doesn't work anymore. And and I think that's not the attitude that I, IT should take these days. What what the main question that we should ask is when is the right time to get IT involved? And, and that's really hard to kind of estimate at what point do you want to kind of ring fence and put some process and control around something that is grown, right? And I and that answer, I believe, is going to be different for each organization. Yeah, that and finding that tipping point is going to be the crucial distinction. Okay, so Zach, did that answer your rhetorical question from way back at the beginning? What do you think? I like it. I like the discussion. I think this is what we need to have. We need to have more of this. It it definitely is on the right path. And this these are discussions that everyone is having. Um, and if they're not, they should be. So, no, this is great. Um, if you think about it, if you think about what was going on with the quote-unquote shadow IT, which I think everybody knows how I feel about that. There There is no more shadow IT. This was forgotten about. At least now we're having the discussion, right? So we've come a long ways. We've come from, you know, several years ago from the business doing their own thing to now at least people are starting to talk about operationalizing it and how do we do that and, and how does it work? And I, no one, I think, has the right answer today, but I think we're getting there. So this is a great conversation. And and, and I, I want just to add one thing, it's very different. I, I always look at it from the fact that if I were starting a company from scratch today, how would it be built? And that's where everything starts to change because these companies who have been around a while, they have so much like history to unwind to get that. And like when we talk shadow IT, such a negative connotation, is it really a negative connotation? I don't think so anymore. I, I think it's, it's, it's starting to come out of the shadows, to be honest. Yes, yeah, like how organizations embraced uh, bring your own device uh, or as we used to call it, spend your own money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is spend your own money. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. I I agree with you. There is no more shadow IT that that has to go away. It has bad connotations. We still hear about it. So I, I'm glad you said that again, Mike. Okay, so I'm sure we'll return to this one because I'm curious who will be the first mover, who will be the person thinking about maintenance on day two uh, in this space. Uh, let's see. So moving on, uh, this story crossed my my feed about airlines and privacy. Uh, it's uh, some Australian guy who found the ex-Australian prime minister's uh, passport number online. And it's a fascinating story. It's a w- really well-written, hilarious blog post, actually. Uh, but what I was interested in was how it showed in very real terms what we mean when we talk about privacy and security and well-designed systems is it's not like the number was just lying out there. I'll recap very quickly, but I highly recommend that you give this thing a read. The The Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, the ex-Prime Minister, posted on Instagram his boarding pass, which has the, the PNR, the, uh, whatever the acronym stands for, but the, the, uh, the booking code. And with that booking code and his surname, uh, the the guy was able to log into the Qantas the Australian Airlines website and get a whole bunch of information. But it's not just the information that's displayed on the website. It turned out that the website was sending a whole bunch of other information in the source code that wasn't displayed, but it was sent to the browser anyway. And so he was able to pull all of this stuff out using uh, precisely no highly technical tricks. It's, it's just there. 
And it, it actually sounded because I, I read it as well. It, it actually sounded like he wasn't so technical at all. The person because he was he was googling most of what to do. That's that's the worst part of this all. Yeah, yeah exactly. Knowing a little bit about what's going on behind the scenes, I'm fairly sure I can understand exactly what happened. But uh, it's it was just interesting. It's the sort of thing that people don't think about. People post pictures of their credit cards for goodness sake on social media number upfront, and it's. Uh, it's not always obvious, okay, what's the harm in, in posing these pictures? This is a good way of uh, of looking at that. And a highly enjoyable read. Yeah, it was actually a really interesting read. Uh, you know, it at the end of the day, it comes down to privacy, right? He he may not have realized that, you know, because I think it started by putting the, the picture of the boarding pass on, on Instagram. Uh, you know, I think there are people who take privacy fairly seriously and people who don't. And I think sometimes as we go through life, we don't realize what we're putting on on the socials. And and that kind of um, opens you up to some things. I, I still think the greatest product uh, in the next couple of years, if somebody can come up with it, is something to guarantee privacy. Uh, but it's hard to envision something that can, that can guarantee uh, privacy these days. And the stuff can backfire. There is a story on our internal Slack at work people who have the the latest MacBooks, uh, someone actually cracked their screen because they had one of those plastic sliding webcam covers. And apparently the fit is snug enough on that latest model that if you close it with one of those things fitted, uh, it can actually crack the screen. So you have to watch out for those unexpected consequences. Well, one benefit of Apple is you can buy the $5,000 insurance for (laughs) the t-shirts and you can cover your, you know, you can cover it. The way it works with Apple is you pay two to three times the value of what you originally pay for the product and then you'll get insurance for replacement costs just throwing that out there great job apple great business model i think zach what what we really want to know zach is have you finally bought new airpods or are you still complaining about the battery life (laughs) you know what i'm caving today i meant to do it yesterday and i'm gonna buy new ones because i'm just tired of complaining my wife's tired of me complaining but apple do i really need to buy new ones or can you just like you know let me use these without messing me up with your firmware updates. Come on. I, I guess, Dominic, what that means is that in about three weeks, there'll be new there'll be a AirPods. new one. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah we, we should just wait. So <laughs> let us know when you get them, Zach. Let us know. I'm still with Apple. I'm still with Apple. I complain, but I'm still here. <laughs> well, no one, no one comes close. No one's, no one comes close. I mean, it's just so, it's so easy with Apple. I mean, that's, that's the issue. So, yeah, yeah. And in all seriousness, actually, the AirPods Pro, the latest firmware update, it has that spatial audio feature. That is actually really cool because it sounds like the sound is coming from where the physical device is and you turn your head and the sound rotates with you. Uh, it's, it's really fun. Uh, I, I guess I'm buying a pair now too, Zach. So I, I'm, I'm in there with you. There you go. <laughs> oh, now that's definitely going to be a new model. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Uh, the other piece of news that's, uh, that hits, so again, recurring topic for us, AI and uh, OpenAI specifically and the GPT-3. Uh, so it seems that Microsoft is paying a chunk of cash to license that exclusively for their own use. Uh, so I'm kind of curious to see where that goes, what they're going to use it for. Did you guys have thoughts on that? You know, I, I read the article and I was a bit, you know, this exclusivity... It, I, I don't know if it if it can live in, in multiple places, but it was enough for me to ask questions of like, is this really an issue? I, I think um, th- there's a real war in the in the cloud space, that's for sure among amongst the big three, and uh, 
you know, you can see Microsoft slowly chipping away at it. So I, I guess if anybody wants to do anything with GPT-3, they're going Azure. Um, you know, is it the right thing? Is it the wrong thing? I'm I'm not um, so sure. It's it's uh, it, it remains to be seen. But enough that, uh, yeah, the article raised my eyebrows. I, I don't know about you, Zach. I mean, how, how you see it, because it, it kind of is encroaching now everywhere, right? The way I see it is if you're a betting person, uh, which I'm not, you would put your money on Satya and all the acquisitions he's made. He's got great vision. Uh, we can go back and name all of them. You know, GitHub, we were just talking about uh, LinkedIn, go you know, go on and on and on. It's so, this week. Exactly. Exactly. So my money is is on Microsoft and on Satya and his vision. What it is, I'm still curious. I think it's interesting. But Mike, you bring up a good point. And maybe this is another discussion for another day. However, when we talk about cloud, I, I think it's interesting. We, we lump them all together. I think with Microsoft, to me, they're unique. They're they're not necessarily what I call a, a DevOps cloud like AWS. They, they are with Azure, but then you look at their other office offer, offerings, excuse me, with Office 365, et cetera. To me, they're more of a SaaS. So I see Microsoft a little bit differently than, than the other two big cloud providers, if you will, Google and um uh, AWS, I consider them more DevOps, and actually Google, perhaps more of a machine learning, you know, AI type type offering. But but Microsoft's unique. Do you guys not agree with that? That Microsoft is very unique. They're more of a SaaS type offering, and they're, they're offering some interesting different uh, differentiators, perhaps. So I have many thoughts on this. Actually, it's probably worth giving it a, a fuller treatment in a future yes. episode uh, because the differences between the three clouds and the emerging second wave of multi-cloud uh, it links into this very nicely. So, so let's see in the next couple of episodes. Let's put this in the main topic and come back to it. Uh, but we're starting to get towards the end of our allotted time. So let's do some recommendations. I have this recommendation, which is a discovery from working from home. So when I travel, um, you know, back in the before times when I used to travel, I always tried to keep the smallest possible amount of stuff in my bag. And so one of the things was I would take notes on my iPad using the pencil that comes with it, capital P pencil. And now that I'm just sitting at my desk all day, every day, I've rediscovered handwriting, like with actual paper. And it turns out that that's a really good way of retaining information well. Uh, but part of that for me is also making sure that I have a nice uh, pen, a nice pencil, and it makes me want to do it more. And so I got myself this uh, Rotaring 800 mechanical pencil. Uh, it's just a, a nice big chunk of aluminium, and it's technical and clicky, and it, is, it feels really good to use. And so if you're thinking of doing that sort of thing, if you have the same sort of bias that I have towards making everything a gear sport, then I highly recommend this. It's just a very satisfying object to own, and it makes me want to interact with it more. So I take more notes, which is useful for retaining more information. There's a link in the show notes. You can look at that. I, I haven't used mechanical pencils since the late 90s, so um, well done, Dominic. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I do get obsessed with my uh, my pens, and there's there's a specific pilot one that I use because I, I, I don't know, it's just the way the the pen hits the paper, right? Something about um, retaining the knowledge and, and, and just keeping it down. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. Okay. Zach, did you have a recommendation? I do. I do. So this working from home uh, has been interesting for me. I've not been eating the way I should eat. I think I work long days. I think a lot of people are probably in the same boat. So I 
has started this. Uh, it's not a diet. I hate to call it a diet. It's it's a it's a calorie restriction uh, fasting mimicking. Uh, it's, it's referred to as a diet. It's by Prolon, and the link will be in the notes. Um, and it's really about uh, you know re- renewing and rejuvenating your cells, making yourself feel better, starving your cancer cells. There's been some crazy research. The link is actually from research from uh, from somebody from Harvard Business Institute. Uh, uh, they've reviewed this diet and actually tried this this diet. Again, I don't refer to it as a diet. It's a five-day. When I say low-calorie, guys, I'm on day four of five, and I'm staring at a bag of pretzel M&Ms that I ate about a week ago. There's some left, and every day, it's all I could do not to rip open that bag. But low-calorie, as in perhaps <laughs> four to 500 calories uh, a day. And uh, it is, uh, again, I, I, I recommend everybody look at this and just check it out. I figure what's a five day investment into my body. So essentially what you do is the, you, you do it for the first week and then you do it quarterly for the first, or I'm sorry, monthly for the first three months. So you do it month one, week one, month two, week one, month three, week one, and then it's just quarterly to maintain. And there's again, been a lot of research. I actually, this is uh, I've started this, um, you know, several months back and I do feel a lot better. I, I, it makes sense to me. The science makes sense to me. And I figure, what can it hurt other than putting me on a low-calorie diet for five days? So it's very interesting. Interesting. So that's your shortness there, um, Zach, um, when, we, when we talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess that's it. That's it. <laughs> All right, right. No, uh, what, uh, recommendations. I mean, I... You know, I don't know if any of you followed the Amazon hardware announcements that uh, the that flying drone. Yesterday. Yeah, man, the flying drone is just like amazing. So, and they, and I don't, I do not have, a, I have a ring, but I don't have a ring alarm. But basically, if it detects intruders, it's going to fly around your house to record, you know, any motion. I mean, this, this is like, you know, just proof that we we live in the future. Um, so I don't know if I'd get one, but it, it's got me interested enough that, uh, wait a second, when I'm not home, you're going to fly around the house to see if somebody's there. Hey, I, I might be a taker. So, uh, interesting. Let's, uh, let's see what they price it at. And, uh, I might be a taker. Let's, uh, let's see how this goes. Yeah. I know a few people said they plan to use it to torment their cats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The cat might take it right out of the, the sky, but who, who, uh, who knows? So let's, uh, let's see, let's see. Yeah, that's my recommendation for this week. Excellent. So that was a great set of recommendations. Uh, We've actually got some uh, guests planned for some upcoming episodes, so I'm really looking forward to the conversation there. Uh, Let's see how those go. But if you want to recommend guests, including by all means recommend yourself, uh, or if you have topics to suggest, do get in touch. Uh, Hit us up on Twitter, Roll4Enterprise with the number four, uh, or via LinkedIn. There's a page for the show. uh, It's just Roll4Enterprise. And uh, we will put all of those links in the show notes. So thanks for listening and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon.